It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Chenu Akib once said, One of the true tests of integrity is its blunt refusal to be compromised. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? Is adultery really that wrong? And our theme text is found in Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Okay, you shall not commit adultery. Is adultery really that wrong? Coming up in today's podcast, um, as, a, uh, as nasty as the subject of adultery is, have you ever thought of the consequences of treating God with adulterous behavior? Find out what happened to Israel when they did that in about 15 minutes. Jesus takes the you shall not commit adultery commandment and adds a whole thought and desire process to it. He makes it so much more uncomfortable. Why would he do that? We're going to answer that in about 30 minutes. In the New Testament, James is really upset at many whom he accused of treating God in an adulterous way. Could we be guilty of their same behavior? We're going to look at that uh, in about 45 minutes, but first, let's put things in order. Ancient biblical history point, paints a very specific picture of the world regarding moral and ethical behavior. In the days of the Jewish law, there were unmistakable lines that anyone of Jewish descent knew they simply should not cross. Just as lying, stealing, and murder were lines not to cross, committing adultery was one as well. Fast forward to our world today, and what do we see? Adultery not only sounds old-fashioned, it's common and even sometimes encouraged. There are websites that exist for the purpose of making it easy to find someone to have an affair with. It's hard to believe that, but it's true. How should we as Christians look at all of this? Should we determine that the law is outdated and adjust to modern-day thinking? Should we focus on the law and what Jesus taught and condemn everyone else? Or is there a middle ground? These are the questions we're going to look at. Well, I would like to take a moment uh, before we begin to thank all those who offered prayers and sent messages about the death of my mom this past week. They really did give me strength. Thank you. And Jonathan, we are really um, glad that you're back, you know, in spite of all of that difficulty. So it is really good to have you back. And it's good to be here. It's good to have support, isn't it? Amen. Okay, so let's quickly recap the previous commandments. You know, we're, we're doing an entire series on the Ten Commandments, and we just want to put them all in order for you very, very quickly. The first four commandments are all about how to thrive in relation to spirituality and to who God is. So, Jonathan, let's go through those first four commandments from Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. That was episode 1147. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. This also comes from episode 1147. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We covered this commandment in episode 1136. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
This commandment was discussed in episode 1127. Okay, so now the fifth commandment, after those first four that were focused on God, is the first step in establishing how to thrive as a physical nation in relation to one another. So this was the opening of the door to dealing with one another. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother, and that comes from episode 1161. And then last week we talked about the sixth commandment. It's the first and most fundamental command regarding our relationship with our entire human family, and that is Exodus 20.13. You shall not murder, and we covered this last week in episode 1168. So here we are at the seventh commandment. This commandment addresses the foundation of the human family relationship, the sacred covenant between husband and wife. Jonathan, the seventh commandment, Exodus 20, 14. You shall not commit adultery. And what does that mean? The word adultery, what does it mean? It means to commit adultery figuratively to apostatize. Okay, go ahead. And, and, and Rick, in looking at the Old Testament, in God's sight, adultery is an utter disgrace. And, you know, that, that's, that's really the context that we have to move forward through this conversation today. Uh, and we're going to get into the apostatizing part of it soon, but adultery is disgraceful in the sight of God. And as Christians, it should be disgraceful in our sight as well. We're going to be telling a story through soundbites. We're not telling a story. Uh, Bob and Audrey are going to be telling their story. Uh, it's a very sad and difficult and challenging story and we're going to drop in on it as we go through the podcast to illustrate the pain and suffering of adultery. The, the YouTube video, the, the title is, I Had an Affair, Bob and Audrey's Story. So let's get started at the very beginning. Bob and I both loved that whole idea of doing anything for Jesus. We were in ministry. I was a Jesus girl. We were rock solid. For Audrey and I, serving God meant everything to us. And that involved, you know, a lot of long hours, a lot of devotion, a lot of sacrifice. As a pastor, I saw this young man who just needed some guidance. So we invited him to be a part of our family activities. I remember feeling so exhausted, so overwhelmed and hiding that. And then this young guy starts coming into our life. And the first thing he says is he seemed to be doing everything for everybody. Do you need some help? And I was like, yes. But the more we hung out together, it turned into, you are, you are so beautiful in every way. Like, I wish I could find a girl even just half as beautiful as you. And the seeds of temptation are planted. There's innocence. There's, there's a good uh, initial motivation involved. And then you have the seeds of temptation. Folks, listen carefully as this story unfolds and as we talk about the scriptures about this subject, because this is a big deal. An observation, Rick. If they had the ability to communicate as a couple, she could have let her husband know how exhausted and overwhelmed she was, and he may not have suggested adding something else to their plate. You know, and we don't know, but I would certainly assume that would have been the case, because they sound like they're both trying to do the right thing all the time, and they sound like they had that support. Communication is everything. It really is. And, you know, this idea of, well, I don't want to tell them, you know, it'll be embarrassing or it'll slow them down or da 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 Nonsense. Communicate 
helps us, when we communicate, it helps us to not plant seeds of temptation elsewhere. Just, just got to do it. So, so that, that's really, really important. Okay, we're going to come back to the story very shortly. We're going to review the hard Old Testament consequences of adultery in, in a few minutes. But first, we want to look at some of the descriptions of how adultery can break you to your very core. And now these are Old Testament descriptions. We typically think of the Old Testament as, you know, God said, don't commit adultery or die. But there's a lot of description that tells you what happens. And this is really important. Proverbs 6, verses 32 to 33. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. Okay, so it talks about the one, the man who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. What does it mean, lacking sense? The heart, also used figuratively, very widely for the feelings, the will, and even the intellect. What does it mean, Rick, when the scripture says adultery brings wounds and disgrace and its reproach will not be blotted out? It's hard to understand. Well, in, in the Old Testament, and we're going to go over this shortly, one of the, conse- the consequences for adultery was death, okay? So, you know, disgrace could be the death and then the disgrace that you leave behind with your name. If you do it secretly and privately, you've disgraced yourself before God because God still knows Wounds, you're not the same unless you deal with such a deep, deep problem. You're not the same. You have wounds that fester and get infected, and life becomes a underneath-the-surface misery. And I think that's what Proverbs 6.23 is, is, is showing us. You know, the act of adultery is heartless and self-destructive, and it can carry lifelong disgrace. Yeah, and if we, being godly, go down this road, Think about what it would do inside of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's the kind of wound that festers from the inside out. And you know what? It's like cancer, Jonathan. People have cancer, and if they don't get their checkups and so forth and so on, you know what happens to that cancer? It grows, and nobody knows it until you're riddled with it. Adultery is cancerous. That's really, really what, what's happening here. Proverbs 30, 20, another scripture that describes what adultery does to you. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Okay, so you just kind of go along and you justify yourself and everything is fine, everything's good, this is what I feel like I should do, don't judge me, this is my life, all of that. The conscience of an adulterer is seared. You know, when, you, when something is seared, you know, it, 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 it's burnt and it's deadened. You can't feel and that's what the conscience of an adulterer ends up being. Let's go to another example. This is from the book of Job. Now, in the context of this, Job is lamenting evildoers who seemingly get away with it. Now, his life is falling apart, and he's like, how could all these people get, get away with the things that they're doing? And he mentions adultery in his list, and we're just going to pick one scripture to, to show, again, con- the, the, the consequences of adultery. Job twenty four fifteen. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me, and he disguises his face. You see, there is shame. There is shame with adultery. You seek the cover of darkness and the cover of secrecy. And when we do something in the darkness and in secrecy, and if we are claiming the name of Christ, there's something fundamentally, deeply, disturbingly wrong with that direction. 
disturbingly wrong if we need the cover of darkness. These are Old Testament descriptions of what adultery does to us. Let's go back to the Bob and Audrey story about having an affair. And remember, she said at the last, at the, in the end of the last soundbite, it turned into, oh, you're so beautiful. I wish I could find a woman just half as beautiful as you are in all ways. So, you know, this complimentary sense, but the seeds were planted. When I knew I was gonna be seeing him, I made sure I looked good. I felt like I was invincible. I thought I could have this guy flirting with me. Nothing would ever really happen. You know, sin takes you further than you ever thought you would go. It goes little by little by little. You just start just one little compromise, just a teeny tiny compromise. And then you quickly find out that there's no such thing as a small compromise. Because that one little touch of the hand or that one little rubbing against, it did something. It, it electrified me somehow. And so I wanted more. You see, sin always craves more and is never satisfied and wants that next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And before you know it, you're on this, this thing that you just can't get off of. You know, one thing she said there, there is no such thing as a little compromise. And she speaks volumes she knows because she's looking back and saying, look at what I did. How did I get there? And the answer was tiny step by tiny step. You planted the seeds, you allowed them to stay, and then you cultivated them. This is where it gets bad. Rick, I've heard it said, and I really have heard it said, that there can be healthy reasons for having extramarital relations, and it can strengthen a marriage. How? Can that be? Yeah, well, you know what, Jonathan? It can be said that, and you can, you can read about it, and you can hear people pontificate all they want about it. But the bottom line, fundamental truth of this is that you have a covenant, and when you step outside of it, you're violating it. And when is it ever, ever a good thing to violate a covenant like that. You know, I mean, you think about it and just take a, take a moment here. You know, suppose, Jonathan, you know, you, you're, you're not eating well. And, and I say to you, you know, Jonathan, um, you have choices. You know, this is all fictitious, okay? I'm making this up. I can see the future. I know that you're, you're headed for a massive heart attack, okay? And I can uh -oh. say, I say to you, Jonathan, you know, it'd be probably a good idea to, to change your, uh, your, your eating habits and do some more exercise. Now, I'm not saying this is you, okay? But just play the game with me here. I okay. say, or, you know what? Why don't you do this? Why don't you just have the massive heart attack? Because that'll wake you up if you don't die. That'll wake you up. And you'll really change your life afterwards. Would you want to choose the heart attack? No. <laughs> okay, because it's, it's, it's practically suicidal to make such a choice. This is what we need to be careful about here. So, you know, no, no. And if you didn't understand what I just said, no. We can't go down such road. You can come with all the excuses you want. Let's talk about it. And you'll see. You will see. God puts adulterers in a very specific category in Psalm 50, verses 16 to 19. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell me my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. See, in this verse, God is, is creating associations. And the associations of adulterers belong with those who take what's not theirs and those who are deceitful. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Of Absolutely. course it does, because 
That's what adultery is made of. And the nonsense of saying, well, you know, this is how I feel, don't judge me, feelings are not principles of God. And let's get it straight. Our feelings will violate God's principles whenever we give them a chance. So we've got to put things in order. Okay, Jonathan, very quickly, though not, not stated in the actual commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, adultery was punishable by death, as were many other sins. We're going to read just very quickly an abbreviated list. This is abbreviated of civil crimes from the Jewish law back in the Old Testament that, that carried a death sentence under that law. So um, adultery is one. What, what else? Incest. Bestiality. Witchcraft. Idolatry or apostasy. Public blasphemy. False prophesying. Kidnapping. Bearing false witness in a capital case. Not guarding your ox that killed, which was known to be wild. These are just some of the things that were worthy of death in the Old Testament. So when, when, when someone says, well, you know, God was pretty harsh with adultery, well, you've got a long list of things he was hard about. And why was he hard? They were his chosen people. They were called out from the world. They were given him to follow in his miracles, and he expected better from them than from everybody else. So as we go through this, Jonathan, and wrap up this first approach, we're talking about sacredness, the sacred covenant of marriage. How, what, how do we go about salvaging sacredness? The Old Testament clearly states God's perspective on the sacredness of marriage for Israel. He also does not mince words regarding the horrific damage that adultery causes as it plainly breaks the covenant of marriage. Its penalty is therefore severe. Make no mistake, severe sin has severe penalty in the Old Testament. It is sobering to see how seriously God takes the marriage covenant and the corresponding fidelity it requires. With the harsh reality of physical adultery in place, is there an Old Testament spiritual application? You know, to begin to fully understand the gravity of physical adultery, we do need to look further into the Old Testament teachings regarding what we will call spiritual adultery. Remember, humanity was created in the image of God. We are his human family. He demonstrated this profound connection by the way he described his relationship with Israel. So in this segment, we're going to look at what spiritual adultery is and what it's made of. But first, a really powerful little quote from Larry Hagman. Once you get rid of integrity, the rest is a piece of cake. <laughs> and it's so true. Jonathan, you take integrity away, and it's so much easier to, to plant seeds and follow through and follow through and follow through. And we're going to see that in our next soundbite from I Had an Affair, Bob and Audrey's story. Uh, here's, and you can tell what's going to happen. Here's what happens next. I had a sexual affair with this guy for three weeks, and I knew that it couldn't continue. Because I just felt something in my heart say, you have to tell Bob. It was the most intense, scary, awful moment in the whole world. And I said, I actually did. I did it. I had an affair. So immediately, my mind is flooded. Images of her with this person. Where am I? Where were our children? This isn't just a little oops. You say that you love me, but yet you give yourself like this? It makes no sense. The rage and the anger that I had was so intense. I just stormed out of the room, slammed doors, stomped my feet. 
I mean, I was a mess. I really wanted to hurt her. I wanted her to feel what I was feeling. You know, it's so hard to describe the depth of the intensity of the damage that we can do to one another, especially to the people that we love the most when we don't take our relationship with the, seriously with the, with the sacredness that it's supposed to be. And you can hear it. You could hear it in, in, in Bob's voice. The, the, and, you know, and I will tell you that this, this video that they're making is like 12, 13 years later, and you can still see the depth of hurt. It just comes welling back because it's such a difficult thing. Always, always, always think. Think before you act. Think in a godly way before you act. Okay, let's get to the Old Testament. We'll come back to the story a little bit later. Old Testament spiritual adultery. First, as we get started with that, introductory scripture. God is lamenting the men of Israel treating their wives treacherously. In other words, divorcing them for foolishness, for stupid reasons, uh, you know, and, and they're continuing to go worship before God. And he's saying, I'm not having this. Here's what God says in Malachi 2, verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So God emphatically says, I hate divorce. He's pointing out that the casual use of divorce as a tool for convenience ends up being hypocrisy on every level, and it's insulting to God, their, 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 their Lord, their creator. It's insulting, and he's, and he's yelling at them. What do you think you're doing? As a matter of fact, I think later in this scripture, he talks about locking the doors of the temple. Yeah, you're going to cry, you can't get in. Oh, you poor soul, stop being evil. You know, that's really really what he's saying. So you can see the intensity of God's reaction here. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah, because Jeremiah deals with um, Israel's unfaithfulness. Jeremiah chapter 2 begins with God lamenting Israel's spiritual infidelity. Observing this is going to help us understand what spiritual infidelity looks like and how it's likened to adultery. Now remember, we just heard sound bites about physical infidelity. We're going to look at spiritual infidelity, and so we're going to set some context, and then we're going to actually start with Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. But right now, Jonathan, let's go to some commentary from Vernon McGee. The messages found in chapters 2 through 6 were given during the first five years of Jeremiah's ministry before the book and the law was found. During this time, however, Joshua, a young man like Jeremiah, was seeking the Lord and instituting certain reforms in the nation. Primarily, he was trying to clean up the idolatry in Judah. The nation had forsaken the living God and had gone over into idolatry you can see that the combined efforts of this young king and the prophet Jeremiah had a tremendous effect upon the nation. Okay, so you have the nation broken into two pieces. The ten tribes are the northern kingdom, and Judah is the two tribes of the southern kingdom. And young King Josiah is trying very hard to put things in order, and Jeremiah is the prophet at the time, and they're focusing in. And here is what God tells Uh, uh, um, Jeremiah in terms of the sinfulness of Israel and of Judah. Now, Jonathan, now we'll go to Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. We'll take it in a few pieces. 
Then the Lord said to me in the days of Joshua, the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought after she has done all these things, she would return to me, but she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So he's describing emphatically the ten tribes, the northern kingdom, saying that she went up, that she was faithless to me, and she went up on these hills, and she was a harlot there. She, and, and, and God says, and, you know, okay, she, 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 was, she was acting in a, in a, like a harlot, and I, and I thought she'd come back, but she didn't. And her sister, the two southern kingdoms, Judah, saw it. So now what, what, what happens next? And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her har- harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Well, Rick, there, there are two things I want to discuss uh, with what we just read. Number one, why, if God hated divorce, did he divorce Israel? I mean, this is serious. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it sounds like God is contradicting himself. You know, Malachi says, I hate divorce. And in Jeremiah says, I handed her, I gave her a writ of divorce, a writing of divorce. And that's officially what happens in Deuteronomy 24. When you hand that writing of divorce to that spouse, they are officially free of you. So why, if God hates divorce, does he divorce Israel? Because it was the best thing for her. She needed to be punished, to be put away from God, because she had gone away from him. So he gave her, said, okay, you want to be away from me? You have, go ahead, you can. The consequences of walking away from God, though, are deadly. They certainly are deadly. So you know, God wasn't contradicting himself. He was, he, was, he was making sure that he was doing the right thing for her. And, and the second point was, what does the phrase lightness of her harlotry mean? Lightness of her harlotry. That, that's just something I just can't yeah, and, get you know, around. And that's a, that's a word that's kind of hard to define. And I, and I think my sense of that is that her idolatry uh, was, was obvious. It was, it was out there. Um, and it was it, the lightness. She, Judah did not treat anything with sacredness. Everything was taken lightly. It was just not appropriate. So, and it says, as a result of that, you pollute the land and you commit adultery with stones and trees. So now let, let's finish verse 10. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. Man, so so not only does Judah not return to God with her whole heart, but brings deception instead. So this is a bad situation. This is a bad situation. God sees idolatry as spiritual adultery. Remember that phrase, because idolatry is worshiping anything that is created rather than the creator. God sees that as spiritual adultery. That's what he's explaining here. Committing adultery with rocks and trees or wood refers to the following of pagan rituals that built altars and images and worshiping what was created and what was imagined. In paganism, it's the earth that is God or a goddess. You know, trees are sacred and, and so forth. And, and they take on this, this role that is inappropriate in relation to God Almighty. They had gone down the road of taking their allegiance to God Almighty 
and giving it to things that God himself had created. And it was, you can't insult God any more deeply than taking your allegiance away from him and giving it to something else. So God's pretty angry here, right? He is. (laughs) Okay, but look at what happens next. Next, we're going to see the mercy of God unfold. Let's go to Jeremiah, again, chapter 3, and let's go to verses 12 to 14. We'll take it in a few pieces. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Well, Rick, God's basically saying, come back to me, Israel. I'm waiting. Yeah, now, it's, that's, that's, a, that's almost a shock. You know, I just gave her this writing of divorcement, and yet what God is saying, I love my chosen people. In spite of her sins, I love her. I want her back. I won't be angry forever. I want you to come back. You're right. I'm here. I'm waiting. There's a great power and great mercy in that statement. Here's the catch. Here's what has to happen. Verse 13 of Jeremiah 3. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. So, Rick, in in other words, take responsibility for your sin, stop it, and repent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Be responsible. Only acknowledge your iniquity. And that's not just say, okay, yeah, I did it. We're talking about acknowledging your iniquity, taking full responsibility and full accountability for that iniquity. So God is saying, do that, and I'm ready to receive you back. And then verse 14 is really kind of an interesting twist on this whole description. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So now you see the twofold relationship here. He talks about, he was talking about an adulterous uh, situation. Then he says in verse 14, return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, I'm master to you. So faithless sons and an adulterous spouse. What God is doing with Jeremiah is he's saying, Israel has abandoned me on every level. I was a father to them. I was, I was as close as a spouse to them. And in both cases, they have walked away for the sake of paganism and idolatry. But he still wants them back. And Rick, it's amazing to see how merciful God is when his children make mistakes. Yeah, you know, and, and we really need to understand that, that God, in spite of this outward harlotry, is saying, I'm waiting. Accept responsibility for your sins, and I'm waiting right here. God wanted Israel back in spite of her faithlessness as sons and her adultery as his beloved. This is God's mercy in full bloom. What did he ask? He only asked that she take responsibility for her sins. So, Jonathan, several observations on these scriptures. Let's go through them. Well, God was profoundly attached to Israel as a nation. Yeah, very obviously, profoundly attached. Secondly, this attachment provoked him to hold them accountable to the tools and standards they were given. The tools. They were given the law, they were given the prophets, they were given the rituals. They had the tools, and they had the standards. He's saying to them, you need to be accountable to those things. 
in the next point, Israel responded with adulterous idolatry and hypocrisy. So it wasn't very good. It's like, you know, you're no. not, not getting the point at all. God's attachment then, next point, provoked him to divorce them. This was for their own good. And the last point, God's mercy left the door of acceptance open through sincere repentance on their part. And Rick, this reminds me of the prodigal son. Hmm. The father was thinking, where's my son? He was longing and looking for him to return. And when he sees him coming, he runs out to meet him. Yeah, you know, how is it that he saw him coming? He was looking. God in Jeremiah is looking for Israel to come back because he loves her. He took hard judgment against her, as he should have, as he had a right to, but his heart was come back, be accountable, and we can move on. You are my chosen people. So, Jonathan, we are looking at spiritual adultery and idolatry, and it's ugly from a spiritual perspective. So, salvaging sacredness for this segment. Jehovah himself directly taught us the degradation that adultery brings, be it physical or spiritual. It breaks sacred promises, but can be recovered from with grace, love, and true repentance can be recovered from. In the Old Testament, we see that very specific example. God's handling of Israel is a dramatic example of the destruction that occurs when fidelity to a covenant is broken. The Old Testament is loud and clear regarding adultery. What direction do Jesus' teachings take this? Well, As you might have guessed, Jesus takes the solid foundation of the Old Testament and builds a sacred structure upon it that's even more precise and more challenging. Why would he do that? Why would he make things harder? Harder. Jesus' point is not to make things harder. It's to make us more faithful. So Jesus isn't going about saying, okay, I'm really going to mess you up on this. He's saying, I'm going to show you how to have true fidelity to God. That's what he's saying. So what you're saying, Rick, is Jesus raised the bar in the New Testament. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, we talked about that last week when we were talking about that you shall not murder. He raised the bar there as well. And he raises it in a big way in both that commandment and this commandment because these these are about our relationship with the people around us. And we need to have that really high standard because we represent him. Short quote from Oliver Cromwell. Subtlety may deceive you, Integrity never will. Again, we come back to integrity. Integrity is what keeps us going. Integrity to God, integrity to our covenants, having that sense of pure, for for lack of a better word, unadulterated honesty and clarity with what we are committed to. Having said that, let's go back to the story. Uh, I had an affair, a Bob and Audrey story. Um, She had just told her husband what she had done, And he's now trying to figure out what to do with all of this. Just when I didn't think the desperation could get any lower, I found out that as a result of this affair, I had become pregnant. And on that day, I didn't think I could face my life. I just felt like I had blown up my whole family. I cried out to God, will you forgive me? And then I went to Bob and I said, could you ever find it in your heart to love me again? I knew that in that moment I had to forgive her, but I was only capable of so much. 
That afternoon, I had to forgive her again. Later that evening, the next day, weeks, months, even years, forgiveness really was a process for me. But we together chose to press in, you know, to each other, but really into God, because we were hoping that he could rescue not just us, but rescue our family and my children. So on top of the horrible sin comes this consequence, and now she's pregnant. Now what do you do? And, you know, I really appreciate Bob's response is, I knew I had to forgive her, and I had to forgive her again and again and again, because it didn't, it didn't stay. He, 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 here's what was happening, Jonathan. He was on the road. He was desirous of doing the right thing. He just wasn't emotionally ready to, to, to embrace it all. And it took him years to embrace it all. But that didn't stop him from making the commitment and going forth again and again and again and again. And he grew into that. What a great example. You know, and, 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 and for us, Jonathan, adultery is a deep and dark sin. You can put whatever circumstances you want on it. Go ahead. It's still a deep and dark sin. We need to put it in its right perspective. Forgiveness is hard. It's really hard with something like this. Maybe a lot of people can't, but he tried. You know, that's the key. He Good tried. for him. Yeah, yeah, and a great example for us, I'll tell you. Okay, we're, we're, we're going to go, we'll come back to the story in a, in a little bit. We're going to go to the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what we did last week. We went into the Beatitudes to see Jesus treating thou shalt not murder, and we're going to use the same basic introduction to see how he treats you shall not commit adultery. After the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, this is in Matthew 5, Jesus gives serious practical examples of what standards of godliness were to look like for his disciples. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, 27 and 28, 38 and 39, 43 and 44, etc., all carry the same theme. And that theme in throughout all of those scriptures is building upon, correcting, and lifting the requirements of the Old Testament law and its current, current meaning in Jesus' day, applications. And Jesus used the phrase, but I say to you. But I say to you was not only lifting the law to a higher standard, it was also correcting any misuses of the law. So when you hear in this context Jesus say, but I say to you, he is making a profoundly important point. With that background, let's go to Matthew 5.27 and hear how he raises the bar. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in it, in it, uh, it is not just the act of the adultery he's saying here, but your thoughts also. So that's how Jesus raised the bar. That means our thoughts need to be sacred. You know, and I'm glad you put it that way. Who else can see your thoughts but you and God and Jesus? Nobody else. And that's the point. See, in that privacy that we have inside our own heads and hearts, we think we can go down whatever road we want to go down. First of all, God and Jesus know. Secondly, I know. And if I am not cultivating and developing sacred thoughts, but rather sinful thoughts, then I'm going in the wrong direction. So here, he's saying it's in your thoughts 
that the sin begins to occur. His but I say to you is, I, Jesus, am telling you, my disciples, that you represent me. You need to act like it. And, and so let's take this apart a little bit. Let's look at this word for lust. It says, you know, everyone that looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery within her, in her heart. What does that word for lust actually mean? To set the heart upon, that is, long for, rightfully or otherwise. Okay. See, we typically think of this word for lust as entirely negative. But it's not. You know, at the end you said rightfully or otherwise. Okay? So it could go in a good direction or a bad direction. Desire. Now, folks, listen. Listen. This is really important. Desire correctly, rightly applied is very appropriate and very, it's a very helpful human emotion. We're just going to show you one example in Scripture of that same word for lust in a very positive fashion. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspire to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Okay, it's a fine work he desires to do. Okay, that's a positive thing. The Apostle Paul is saying, if someone wants to be uh, serving the flock, that's a great thing to want to do. So that's a human desire that's properly placed. So it can be, human desire can be good. So it doesn't mean that we shut down all of our desires. It means we filter through and see which ones are righteous and which ones are full of iniquity. That's what it means. That's what we're, where we have to go. So when Jesus says, you know, look at a woman uh, with lust for her has already committed adultery, here's what's happening. He's speaking very plainly. For his disciples, looking upon another person with inappropriate desire is to commit a sin of the heart. Are you guilty of actually committing adultery? No. 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 You are guilty of compromising the principles of discipleship. Yes, you are. Yeah. Okay. There. So there's where the guilt is. There's absolutely a compromise, even though it's inside of your head. And those we are accountable for. This is why Jesus raises the bar, because our accountability starts from within. James 1, 14 to 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Rick, many believe that in a good marriage, with the thrills and the chills of romantic courtship, they'll always uh, intensify over time. They'll grow. But what if it doesn't? Is that a reason to look elsewhere? When we make an emotionally based decision, we're always liable to sin. Yeah, you know, and, and, and look, this is not a podcast on, on marriage and, and the principles that keep marriage fresh and, and, and growing. But, you know, if, you, if you're in a place where you feel like it's stagnant and, and, and so forth, and you say, well, I need to go elsewhere, time out. No, no, you don't. What you need to do is dig in. You need to figure out. You need to communicate. You need to work together, not apart, not in secret. That's what Jesus is warning us against. Don't let the difficulties of life cause you to go down those roads where only your thoughts are, are, are being revealed, and they're just revealed to you. Of course, God does see them. So Jesus, let's, let's go back to Matthew 5. Jesus emphatically teaches us what to do if we find ourselves in such a compromised emotional position. Now, these next verses in Matthew 5, verses 28 to 30, this is symbolic language, and it's hard symbolic language. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. 
for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. So, you know, you can say, well, somebody skeptically can look at us and say, oh, Jonathan and Rick are just making those symbolic because they don't want to handle it. No, they are symbolic. How do we know? Last week's podcast, we talked about the symbolic language of going before the court and going for, before the Sanhedrin and why we understand it to be symbolic. You want to get into that podcast to get the context of that, but this is clearly symbolism for Jesus. And he's saying, stop looking if what you see translates into sinful desire. Your spiritual life depends on it. He's saying, stop doing if what you're engaging in is against God's righteousness. Your spiritual life depends on it. And Rick, a practical question. A very attractive woman walks by. Are we not supposed to look at her? That's a good question. That's a, that's a, that's a good question. And, and you know what, Jonathan? Here's the thing. And folks, be, be, be very clear on this. There is nothing wrong or sinful about appreciating beauty. There isn't. There is something wrong and sinful when we appreciate beauty and attach an agenda or a desire to it that's inappropriate. So if you can appreciate beauty for the sake of the beauty and move on with your life and just leave it at that, no, that's not a wrong thing. But to attach an agenda or a desire or a secret thought or a secret wish or whatever it is, that is where the seeds of temptation are planted. So we've got to be really careful with that. So just be careful. Be very careful. For a Christian, adultery, be it just in the mind or actual, is a tragic end result. Revealing our choosing, uh, it reveals rather, our choosing to allow many quiet symptoms of mediocrity and sin to have a place in our hearts and minds where they have the opportunity to flourish. So if you are of this mind, you need to make a choice to keep putting it away for life over and over again. Yeah, see, over and over again. It can come up, and you have to put it away. And it can come up, and you have to put it away. And if it happens 100 times in a day, you know how many times you have to put it away? 100 times. That's right. So stop as many times as you start. There you go. That's the, That's the equation. That will always keep you out of that trouble. Let's look, Jonathan, let's look at some compromises that start out where we're kind of going in the right direction, but we just don't finish. The first point is, is we may love righteousness, but we don't hate iniquity. Psalm 45, verse 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. We, it's not enough to just love righteousness, Jonathan. We need to hate that which is wrong. And if we don't hate with that which is wrong, we will allow it to exist and we will give a place for it to live. Not good. Not good. Next point, we may hear and appreciate the word of God, but we are not fully committed to living the word of God. James 1.22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Rick, uh, we've heard this saying, come to God as you are. Well, James is saying, but don't stay as you are transform. Yeah, yeah. And, and see, that's the thing. If we are not doing, living the Word, and we are coming and we're appreciating, it's great to appreciate it. But you know what? You're fooling yourself, and you're not fooling God. You're not fooling Jesus. 
you're fooling yourself. So James has got it right. You are foolish by not living that which you claim to be a part of. Third point of mediocrity. We may love God, but we have not used that devotion to help us undo our earthly desires. 1 John 2, 15 to 16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are three things that feed all sin. We have to love God enough to have that devotion help us undo those things. They're listed for us. It makes it easier for us to identify and then attack. And then the last point of mediocrity, we may know what's right, but we've not allowed that knowledge to actually drive us. Colossians 3, verse 5. And this is from the Weymouth translation. Therefore, put to death your earthward inclinations, fornication, impurity, sensual passion, unholy desire, and all greed, for that is a form of idolatry. Well, Rick, it's a process to undo earthly desires. When you're young in Christ, you may not realize you're doing things improperly until you spiritually grow and mature. Yeah, you know, and we have to understand that that's the way it is with all of us. The process of growth is learning how to identify things as you get older, as you, you, you have more experience. You can look back and say, wow, all this time I was doing that, and really that was kind of childish. I should be here. Let me go there now. Now, it's not to say you go back and say, oh, what a failure I was. No, what a child I was. But by God's grace, I'm growing up in Christ. So we can't see things the same way we saw them at the beginning. We have to see that, and that's why Jesus sets this bar so high, higher and higher and higher in dealing with this sin of the mind. Salvaging sacredness, Jonathan, what do we have? To say we should be always aware and prepared to fight sins of desire is to understate the matter. Our vigilance must be based on the full breadth of our commitment to daily present to present our humanity as a living sacrifice to God. Daily present our humanity as a living sacrifice to God. Daily, not on Sundays, daily. That's what we have to do. Understanding Jesus' word and his condemning of evil thoughts serves as a sobering wake-up call. What about spiritual adultery for Christians? Are we liable to such a sin the same way Israel was? You know, Observing and applying the experiences of Israel to our Christian lives is a huge benefit. We can, we can learn by observation. However, just because we can learn by observing doesn't mean we will learn that way, okay? We, too, as Christians, have the serious responsibility of spiritual fidelity to live up to. We have to do the work. We've got Israel as an example, but we have to do the work ourselves for our own lives. Jonathan, another quote, this time H. Uh, Jackson Brown Jr. Live so that when your children think of fairness, caring, and integrity, they think of you. Isn't that a great piece to put in place? You know, the idea, and you know, you notice how all these quotes just happen to be about integrity. Oh, yes. <laughs> about living up to the things that we said we would do, about being in line with the service to God through Christ. I mean, that's what it's about. And adultery is no exception. And adulterous thinking is no exception. 
There is no zero, zip, zilt, not a place for that in a Christian heart and mind. Having said that, let's go back to uh, our final soundbite from the Bob and Audrey story. And, you know, she revealed that she's pregnant, and Bob understands he needs to forgive her, and he's struggling through the process. And now you have this child on the way. What happens? When he was born, I asked Audrey if I could name him. I gave him my name, Robert. I don't want my son to ever question one day in his life whose boy he is. He's my son now. The fact that he has his name just is that complete acceptance. It's such a picture of what God does for us. Not only does he accept us, not only does he forgive us, but he gives us his name and he redeems our life from what was supposed to be stolen and taken away. He gives us as a gift. And you know what? There's really a revival after repentance. We don't have to have any secrets anymore. We trust each other and we love being married. When you participate with sin, it always takes. But when you participate with God, He always gives life. Isn't that an amazing ending? You know, the idea of giving the boy his name to make it unmistakably clear, this is my son. And that's a great picture of the godly forgiveness that we are capable of as human beings. Now look, it's hard. And I'm not suggesting that every time you have this kind of situation, it's going to end up this way, because it won't. But if we can find a way to come back to communicating in a godly way between ourselves when we've had such difficulty and we lay it before God and we do the work day after day after day, maybe, maybe. What an awesome picture of a, of, of a level to strive for. You know, and that's what God did with Israel. Let's not forget that. God was waiting. God was waiting. So let's talk about, okay, after all that beautiful stuff, let's talk about spiritual adultery, all right? Uh, now, and, and, and when we start that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks about physical adultery in the context of our spirituality. Listen carefully to the, to the connections that the Apostle makes, and he's talking to the Corinthians here, 1 Corinthians six fifteen to 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins or to glue himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. So Rick, uh, it's either we adhere to evil or we adhere to God. Yeah, you know, and, and it's interesting. The one who joins, it means to glue himself to a prostitute who is one body with her. You have joined in a way that was meant for the sacredness of marriage, and that's the end result. That's the bottom line. And people can say whatever they want about, well, you can do it and it'll be healthy this way or that. No, it won't for that specific reason. We need to just understand it. It's very simple. This powerful reminder of the original model of marriage fidelity is being written to the Corinthians those whose backgrounds were deeply pagan. They needed to see the clear line of fidelity that God had drawn in Genesis, and it needed to be brought right in front of their faces. And now, next, the Apostle Paul 
raises the bar even higher. We're in 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to go to 17 through 20. We'll take it in a few pieces. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And see, that's what you just said, Jonathan. You, you make a choice. What are you glued to? And it's spiritually, we glue ourselves to our Father most importantly. And then here's what the Apostle says next. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. This is why we need to be so cognizant of the sin of adultery, because it's against our own body, it's against the sacred covenant of God, it's against our spouse, it's against everything possible that could be good. And now the apostle takes it to the spiritual level. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You have been bought with a price. You don't belong to you anymore. That's the deal we made when we gave our life to God through Christ. That's the deal. Sensuality-based thinking needs this kind of blunt and unmistakable reminders regarding the do's and don'ts of Christian behavior. This is blunt. It's straightforward. My body is the dwelling place of God's Spirit. My body is sacred. My actions, therefore, must be sacred. My thoughts, therefore, must be sacred. Everything about me must be sacred. Wow, that's very sobering. That really hits home. It does. It does. <laughs> and this keeps us from getting into trouble. That's what it does. Now, so let's, let's tie this in with, with, with James. Paul's lessons on behavior are a strong foundation for James's teaching on spiritual adultery. Here comes the spiritual adultery in the New Testament. James, in the book of James, begins with a reference to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. So we're looking at James chapter 4. Let's start with verses 1 through 2. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, Rick, when we assassinate our brother's reputation, evil speaking, it is like destroying one another. Yeah, that you shall not murder. That's exactly what we talked about last week. So you've got that as a basis for what James is going to say next, and you know where he's going with it, okay? What's the subject today? You know where he's going with it. You know, and, and James is asking the, the brothers and sisters of that time that are in such a difficult position, he says, you know, why do you have such unrest? And he says, personal pleasures create conflicts. Unfulfilled human desires cause you to slander, and envy fuels all fires. So it's like you're feeding all of these fires, and it's all wrong. It's all backwards. And he's essentially about to say, you are in a no-win battle, James 4, 3. You ask, and you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. He's saying, here's your problem. You are so focused on what you want You've lost what God wants for you. And by having that go backwards, you will not receive. Just like Israel, when they had were, were, were playing the harlot, they had to come back. Christians can do the same thing. That's the difficulty here. So what's the result of blatant and sinful human thinking and action among the people of God? Well, you know, James is very blunt, and he's going to tell us next in verse 4. You adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay, friendship the world is hostility toward God. You're an adulteress in relation to your God. That is a huge, powerful, sickening accusation. Seeking to fulfill sinful desires while being God's child adulterates our relationship with our Father. Whoa. Folks, we have to be so vigilant to understand, to keep these things exactly in the order that they belong. Now, James doesn't stop there. No, he's on a roll, okay? He is, he's built the case, he's laid it out, he's dropped the bomb on what's happened. And now he's going into, just like Paul did, talking about the Spirit. He says, next he's going to talk about when God gives his Spirit, his power and influence to dwell in us. He does it to show his absolute fidelity to our highest well-being. That's why God gives us his Spirit. So how do we, we, we repay such a life-changing gift? Well, James 4, 5, it's not good in this situation. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So God is jealously desiring his spirit to work in us. And if we fight it, we are adulterating our relationship with our Father. So in spite of all of our clamor, our fighting, our desire, our envy, and our strife, we can regroup if, if we follow what James says Next. Now, see, this is what I love about James. He, he digs this hole and says, man, you are wallowing in this hole of misery and, and disgustingness. I don't think that's a word, but. <laughs> <laughs> and now let me show you how to lift yourselves out. James 4, verses 6 through 9. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, so he's talking about God's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. He's saying, here's how you line yourself up. You have to understand that concept. And now here comes the process. And Jonathan, we're going to go piece by piece here. Verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Okay, submit. That's the first thing. And that means emotionally. That means with your desires. That means everything. To submit to God means to put everything before him. What's next? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You can't resist the devil unless you first have decided to submit to God. If you try to resist the devil without submitting to God, you will fail. So he's giving us this process. What's next? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And Rick, prayerful communication with God is a great way to draw near to God. Real open and heartfelt prayer with tears and frustration. Let him know. Yeah. We need to give him opportunity to help us through it. Yeah, you know, God already knows the depth of your despair and, 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 and problem, but he wants you to know. So he wants us to pray with that passion and emotion and anger and frustration so he can say, thank you. You finally got it out. You finally gave it to me. Now, may I have it? And so you won't take it back. Now I can help you. We, it has to be that depth of prayer. Drawing near to God is not lip service. It is bringing ourselves closer to our Father through that sincere prayer you're talking about. What's next? What's next? Um, 
cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. (laughs) Oh, my. Well, what this is showing is the discipline and struggle in the Christian walk. When we make mistakes, repentance should bring us to sorrow and shame. We deserve it. But God smiles and says, I'm waiting. Come back into harmony with me. Good. You're moving closer to me now. Yeah. You know, and and again, submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Cleanse your actions. Clean up what you're doing. Uh, uh, purify your hearts. Purify your desires because you're double-minded at this point. And then be miserable and mourn. Yes, we need to be miserable and mourn and weep. We have to because that's what repentance is. It's saying, look at the depth that I have gone to that has been against my God. What have I, what must I do? And just, but folks, you don't live there, okay? You visit there and you stay there long enough to make sure you give it over to the Father. And having done all this, having repented of our adulterous behavior and purified our intentions, now we go to James 4.10, and this is what it says. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So think about this. Just a few verses ago, he said, you adulteresses. And now a few verses later, after applying spirituality, he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's a pretty far cry from adultery, adulterating our relationship. Amen. So there's a process. So we need to understand that we can commit spiritual adultery just like Israel did. But it doesn't mean we have to stop there. It means we get down on our knees and we do the things that we need to do to clear up our relationship. So we, we, we don't want to adulterate anything as Christians. Jonathan, let's wrap this up. Salvaging sacredness, what do we have? For Christians, you shall not commit adultery. Obviously means having complete fidelity to our spouses. But even more important is the higher necessity regarding fidelity to our God. If we should ever slip, fall short, get confused, or be tempted, let us always remember the pathway back to fidelity is always through true repentance, humility, and a lot of hard work. Okay. The core of everything that we talked about here today is really simple. You shall not commit adultery means we have to have that complete fidelity to our spouses and to our God. That's what this is. Everything here is about. Jesus raised the bar so we could do that from the inside out and not just from the outside in. Let us make sure that we take this commandment to heart and into our thoughts and into our desires and cling closely to the spouse that we've been given by God's grace and to our God and to our Lord Jesus Christ because they are the ones who can hold us up. And when we fall, brethren, get up. Get up. Ask for forgiveness. Be, live, repentant, and then move forward. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions in this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, next week, does being a Christian have to be difficult 
you know, after everything we've been talking about, it's like, and now you're going to be talking about <laughs> being, being a Christian and being difficult? Yep, that's where we're going. Does it? Does it have to be difficult? Talk to you next week. <laughs>